What's good, everyone? My name is Jacob Moses, community builder at Strong Towns, and welcome to It's the Little Things, a Strong Towns podcast where in each episode, we focus on a different action that you, the concerned citizen, the elected official, the city planner, can take to make your town stronger. This episode's action, innovating in local government. There's a common stereotype about local government that I'm sure all of you have heard. It's slow. It's slow to hire, it's slow to adopt technology, and it's slow to create a meaningful impact in our cities and towns. Truthfully, this stereotype is justified. That's just the nature of bureaucracy. But there's good news. That doesn't mean our elected officials can't use their knowledge and skills to create an impact. All they need is a little innovation. In this episode, we'll chat with Nick Kittle, former Chief Innovation Officer for Government, current Government and Innovation Coach at Cartograph, and now author of his recently released book, Sustainovation, about the current landscape of local government, why it's slow, and how you, whether you're a council person or a city manager, can start innovating today to create a meaningful impact in your city or town. Enjoy. What's good, Nick? How are you today? Doing great, Jacob. How's it going today? Going good, going good. How's life in Denver? Uh, we are in the middle of a glorious fall day, so it could not good. be better. I'm happy to hear it. Well, Nick, I'm so excited to be able to chat with you today. We have a, a big action to unpack together, and that is innovating in local government. And man, I know this is totally your wheelhouse. You've been in the, the business of government innovation for, what, 10, 12 years now? How long have you been messing with this? Close to 10 years now. Yep. And then so much so that you've recently released a book on the topic, came out earlier this month called Sustainovation, Building Sustainable Innovation in Government, One Wildly Creative Idea at a Time. And Nick, I know throughout all of your experiences working in local government, you got some great grist for the mill to write this book and some strong experiences. Nick, I'd love to start off with, what's the current landscape in local government that motivated you to write this book? I think part of it is is the fundamental misunderstanding of how we actually deal and build in innovation in government. I see a lot of it talked about, innovation being that buzzword, right, that people talk about, but not a lot of practical, fundamental understanding of what we need to do to actually make that happen. You know, we live in an age right now where the number one fear in America is corruption of government officials. Uh, Chapman University does a study every single year where they ask Americans, what's your greatest fear? And the number one fear in America for three years in a row is government. And that's a pretty staggering statement. And so to me, part of us not having that mantle and that burden placed upon us anymore is to really get to a place where people are understanding what it is we're doing and we're able to communicate that. But two, when we find out what we're doing, they're excited about it. And they're they're excited about the way that we're we're changing the way that we do business. And I think that's what our citizens are expecting and looking for from us. So for me, it was, I needed to find a way to help put these ideas out there. But I also think that fundamental misunderstanding of how we get where we're looking to go really compelled me to kind of write the book and share my experiences and my knowledge in this area. And Nick, you mentioned that this term innovation, it's sadly become a bit of a buzzword whenever elected officials are asked, how do we prepare for the future of our city? How do we evolve our current policies? And we continually hear elected officials say, we innovate, we apply innovation. That is the solution to all of our problems. 
But Nick, I know that the term innovation is anything but a buzzword in your opinion, and that you know that it has tremendous power to really revitalize our local government. I'd love to hear from you, Nick. What's your definition of innovation and what's holding our elected officials back from actually applying it instead of using it as just this sexy word to answer all the questions? My definition, and this is what I help people understand, are the principles of creativity implemented. So I believe innovation is creativity implemented. If it's not creative, well, then it's not innovative. And if we can't get it done, then it doesn't really matter because it doesn't matter how many ideas you have. It matters how many you can make happen. And that's the difference in kind of what you're talking about there, which is people like to talk about it, but it is a lot different and a lot more difficult to do it, and especially in government. And so we have to understand the level of commitment that we're getting ourselves into when we talk about innovation and how we get there. In terms of what's holding back our elected officials, I think part of it's the impression that there is risk associated with it, and that risk outweighs the way that we've always done things. And I think to me, that's the opposite, right? The number one impediment to innovation in government is risk, nothing new there. But then when we think about the cost and the penalty of doing nothing, and there is a consequence for doing nothing, when we think about that and stack that up against innovation, now all of a sudden it gets a lot less scary. If we spent the same amount of time talking about our fear of change as we do about our fear of doing nothing, I think we'd have a completely different landscape in terms of how our elected officials, as well as our senior leaders look at it. So we've changed our mindsets about what innovation means in relation to local government. Nick, what does it look like in practice in local government? How do we foster it? Does it start with the city manager who reads Sustainovation and then they come among their colleagues and cast the vision? Or is it as simple as a couple city council people pondering what innovation actually means and having those ideas start on a lower level in local government? How do we make it happen? Great question. And of course, I believe every city manager across the country should have a copy of Sustainovation in order to be able to help guide them. Um, so no small plug there. But I'll say this. The truth of it is I talk about two types of innovators in the book, the map makers and the map followers, and both of them create a different type of value. Innovation can be a wildly disruptive idea. And I'm a big fan of that. But I'm a fan of pilot programs to help prove concepts and then scaling up. Right, So we have to do pilots correctly, and most people don't in my experience. And that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the idea becomes an action. And that's where we can learn a lot of lessons because we're measuring data accurately. We're learning lessons about it. For me, that's where we foster it is we, we get into a mode where piloting projects is expected, not just an exception to the rule, but is the rule itself. I think there's a a misperception by a number of people that the city manager or elected officials have to lead the charge. And I don't buy it. I think it's an absolute cop-out in my opinion. It is certainly preferred to have some leadership in those areas in some cases, but it may be more difficult to do it without that, right? I believe in a mandate. We have a mandate to innovate, whether it's supported by the top or not. If you're out there serving your citizens and you believe in, in this, right, then it's there's a cost to doing nothing that imperils our community and our citizens. And so it's certainly easier to have innovation efforts come from the top in some cases, but I find you can make amazing strides without top-level support, and sometimes that even works against you, right? If we think about a city manager new to an organization who comes in and says, we're going to do innovation, great. It may be that some of the employees just want to wait it out, ride it out. We know that somebody at the top will turn over, and so we don't have to do it right now, and we just have to wait out this buzzword. And same thing with elected officials. They're going to turn over in the next cycle. 
So we have to do things that as soon as we have the opportunity, start to build it into the culture and the DNA of how our community operates, how our organization operates. And I think there's some really slick ways to do that when it comes to piloting, when it comes to things like innovation funds, when it comes to how we allow our employees to educate each other, not just educating our employees. So, so there's some things in that. Um, I believe innovation movements can begin as a grassroots effort by even a monomaniac with a mission. It doesn't lend itself to job longevity in some cases, but if you're in the business of making your community great and you really feel the pull of public service, you have to lose that fear of failure. And that means that we can innovate from a grassroots level, which is how I've done it in some places in the past. And sometimes I've done it with the authority and the tacit authorization of leadership. So both are possible, but I don't think it has to come from the top. I believe in grassroots movements and I believe one person can start a movement. Love it, Nick. And I love how you're presenting this term innovation and how instead of thinking it as a list of criterion, okay, once we check off all the boxes, then we're innovating. Instead, it's this mindset that's baked into how the government operates. And it doesn't have to start with the city manager. It can start with the council people. Nick, how do we get the public involved in this innovation, because I imagine that they're a great source of ideas that we can incrementally apply through pilot programs as well, right? Absolutely. You know, the public certainly has no, and as I'm sure most of my government listeners out there know, the the public has no shortage of ideas how things should work, right? <laughs> but but part of that is is you know we need to communicate with them in a plain language that allows them to be participatory in the process. That does two really important things for us, Jacob. One is it puts us in the position of reducing the fear. Again, like I talked about that Chapman University study, they're afraid and and they're afraid because they don't understand what it is we're doing. And I'd argue that government doesn't make it easy to understand what it is we're doing. We use government terms like, um, so for example, if we're talking stormwater, somebody might say, well, uh, we installed a lot of riprap to reduce the turbidity along the riparian corridor. Nobody's going to (laughs) understand what that means. That's government jargon, right? And so does that invite participation? Not really. If I said we installed some big rocks in order to reduce the dirtiness of the water along one of our important waterways, now you can share ideas because you can understand what it is we're talking about. So part of this is understanding the language and getting back to to plain language so that we can truly interact with our citizens and then they can participate in the process because they not only understand it, but they feel clear about it. It's not just transparency which is sort of that first step, but it's clarity and translating what it is they're reading from government speak into something where they can be participants in the process itself. So our step one is we have to get clear about how we're communicating so that we're telling great stories that our citizens can get excited about and can participate in, and then we can access their ideas in order to help make our communities great as well. And I imagine it gives the public a sense of ownership as well. Because you're exactly right. People tend to fear corruption in the government. And really, our only interaction with our elected officials is whenever we're mad about something. It's whenever the the trash hasn't come by that week. So I angrily call my accounts person and say, hey, why is my trash still out on the curb? That's the cycle of our interactions with the council people or any elected official. It makes sense that we grow a bit weary Going back to the pilot programs, it's a matter of being iterative, and we get these iterative improvements through feedback. And what a great way to get feedback from our constituents whenever we have that shared language. 
use that great stormwater analogy. If we want to hear back from people about what they think about it, we need to talk like them. That's the only way we can really get actionable feedback. Absolutely. And let's talk about pilots for a second, Jacob, because I think this is one of those things that we can help you know, maybe clarify a little bit. I think this is one of those areas that I, I feel personally I've been very successful in is, is mastering the concept of how we go about piloting. So in my government career, I did over 65 pilot projects and learned some hard lessons in that process. I had what I would call 83% of them were successful as I intended. The other 17% weren't. Part of a pilot is we, we know we're not talking a full scale, something or another, right? It's short in duration, size, and scope. And here's something really important. We only measure one, two, or three things that matter to determine whether it's successful before we decide whether we're going to iterate on a larger scale like you're talking about. So we don't measure unnecessary things. We don't measure 10 things on a pilot, only one, two, or three, because as soon as we increase the burden, then next thing you know, innovation becomes a burden to the organization as opposed to something simple to implement and learn about. And you'll get a lot less support for those where you sort of overmeasure. And the last and most important thing, and I can't stress this enough, if you're in government and you're going to engage in piloting, be honest. You know, you have to be honest about the results of your pilot. That is your innovation currency. I was the first person to stand up in those 17% that failed and say, you know what? This absolutely did not work like we wanted it to. And in fact, it didn't work to such a level that we're not going to do any further iterations of this pilot. We tried it. It was unsuccessful. Here's the things we measured. And as you can see, we didn't generate the results that we were hoping for. But what that does is it allows me credibility when I do walk in and say, you know what, this pilot really created a successful model for us. I think we should scale it up. Here's the funding we need. And here's the result that we can generate if we get that funding. So that credibility is the innovation credibility that I think everybody needs in that pilot space in my mind. I think the last thing is at the end of every pilot project, we conduct what I call the blame-free autopsy. And so in this, whether it works or whether it doesn't work, we get everybody together a week after that project ends and talk about, here's what worked, here's what didn't work for us, and we don't do it by assigning any blame. So we don't say names. We may talk about positions. We may talk about support we need from a department, but we don't say bill. We say accounting right? And that way we're not assigning blame. And we do it whether we win or lose. That way people know that it's an organizational expectation that we will review because we believe in improving. So Nick, from your experiences working and launching all of these different kinds of pilots, is the public usually receptive to them? From your experience, have you noticed any certain kinds of messaging or any branding of these pilots have made the public more accepting of them and more willing to get involved and give feedback? You know, it's a tricky question. And I think there's a line to walk with this. I am by nature at times Machiavellian. (laughs) Sometimes the, you know, we don't have an engaged electorate in many cases. And so we don't have a lot of people educated about all the nuances of government. So it becomes really difficult in certain situations to get the public aware of everything they would need to be aware of in order to support something. So I'm big on determining before we get involved in these things, is what we're after, is it consent or consensus? And those aren't the same things. In some pilot projects, we do need consensus. And that's very rare, in my opinion. In some cases, we need consent. And that is, this is the direction we're going. Here's what we're trying. I find that people tend to get on board after. So for me, I ask forgiveness, not permission. And what I do is I go out and prove it. And I have the courage of my convictions. 
So I will try something knowing that it may ultimately cost me my job or I might get reprimanded for it. And the same people who will say to you, that won't work, will be the first ones after it does. And especially with elected officials, I find they'll be the first ones to say, I was totally supportive the entire time. Um, (laughs) And then the important thing there is say, absolutely. And thanks for your support. Thanks for being part of the team. And, you know, we invite more and more people into that. And once we start to get those successes, once we start to do multiple pilots and we have some wins and we have some losses, people can decide, are they on board with where we're going with this? And and if not, then, you know, it's a different situation. But I think when they are on board with it, they don't stop you. You know, they'll start to get more on board with where that is. And so in some cases, I've definitely had situations where the public has been supportive. It's been their idea. And we're going to go forward with it. And I've got a good deal of consensus out of it. In other situations, the public isn't going to understand the nuances of what we're trying to accomplish with a pilot. And so let's try it out, take that risk upon ourselves or our organization to a certain degree, and recognize that we need to try this out because it could fundamentally change the way that we do business and then service our citizens. And then after it's successful, we can talk about this worked. Here's why it worked. Let me tell you the story of why we did this. And yeah, Nick, with so many of these controversial developments, whether it's a, a demarcated bike lane or a new housing development, really, it only takes one success story. And that's what really resonates with me with this pilot programs is that it's a great opportunity just to chest out if this project makes sense. And I imagine a big challenge, I've never worked in local government, but not having like a narrative fallacy in your mind of the expectations just, hey, we're going to try this out. We have a couple criteria that we're going to measure, but not telling yourself, okay, this is going to be a success from the start. How important is that mindset of not knowing what to expect, embracing the unknown when you're launching a pilot program? Well, that is the very nature of it, right? Which is to say the, the law of unintended consequence is a powerful influencer when it comes to innovation. So if you feel you know sort of fastidious in your thinking that you know the outcomes that will happen you will be disappointed (laughs) because part of it is these unintended consequences, things you don't expect to happen that end up creating some of the greatest benefit out of your innovation projects. And we see that sort of smattered throughout history. That's a pretty consistent theme. So it is the embracing of the unknown, right? It's the courage to lose sight of the shore that allows us to actually discover new lands, right? So part of this is recognizing that as we start, we have an intention, we have a desire We're doing this because we know that we need to do something different, and there's a penalty if we don't. But at the same time, let's not be so arrogant and have so much hubris that we think to ourselves, we know what the outcome looks like, and then get disappointed when it doesn't work out like we expect. And I think that's part of the other stuff that I help people work on is is not getting demoralized when things don't go the way that you expect. And it's that's certainly one of those things I've seen out of some great innovators who don't innovate as much anymore is that they've kind of been beaten down because it, it didn't work the way they expected it to. We've got to create some mental resiliency around that and know that it won't. And this is not easy to do. That's the difference between saying the word innovation and actually doing. It's the difference between pointing out a mountain and saying, yep, I climbed that mountain and then actually climbing the mountain, which are two very different things. Nick, let's talk about idea generation within local government. We know that every pilot program starts with an idea. Do we need to change anything within the culture of local government where anyone, whether it's a city council person or a city manager, feels the courage and feels empowered to share their ideas? Is there a bridge between 
the ability to do that right now? I think there's a big gap there. And so I want to address a couple things inside of what you just said. And there's some important things, but we can, we can build some bridges. We can build some bridges. First of all, I'd say that innovation is creativity implemented. Part of what we lose is the creativity aspect as we grow up. So as we get older, creativity is literally trained out of the majority of the population, whether by school, because the person at the front of the classroom, the teacher has the answer, right? So we stop asking why, and we learn that behavior. Now, for me, my uh, dad was vice president of research and development at Dow Agrosciences, and my mom was a quilter. And so I have an artist family and sort of an R&D family. So from my background, that was part of the requirement of life. You had to be creative in my life. And, and that's how I was raised. But I find that a lot of people don't know creativity techniques. And there's a lot of them that we can train people to get better at doing. So I think part of it is retraining the creativity back into our employees, because I don't think they have had exposure to techniques that allow them to be creative. Another piece in this equation that's missing is the way that we brainstorm is stupid, straight up. We brainstorm in the most idiotic way possible. Show up at eight o'clock on Monday, and all I need you to do is be creative for the next hour to solve a problem that's existed for 30 years, and we're going to do it in one hour. That's ludicrous. It doesn't respect the process that we all creatively must go through in order to do that. And it values the loud person in the room over those who may be more quiet, but also have great ideas. So I teach people how to reshape the brainstorming process. And that's a huge piece of this. And then that last bridge that we have to make is that piloting. You know, when it comes to the actual implementation, when we get into a space where the culture of the organization is that piloting is accepted and expected, now we've changed the way that people are looking at it. And, and let me just give an example with that real quick. If I, if I walk into an organization and I say, um, you know, we're going to try something new, you know, the normal reaction might be, that's not the way that we do it in blah, blah, blah county or blah, blah, blah city, right? That's not the way we do it here. Instead, if we're in a pilot mode, the conversation switches around to, we're going to try this. And somebody might say, well, we don't, we don't support that. That's not our way or whatever. I'm sorry, you don't even want to try, right? Once we frame the conversation as people who are willing to try versus those who aren't willing to try, culturally, we start to see an awakening of those people who haven't been empowered to make that cultural change start to make it. And that's where we see that groundswell movement start to happen. And that's why I say it can be a grassroots thing because it becomes a conversation about people who will try to better their community even though it might not be successful, and those who won't. So how do we keep that momentum going? Say there's been a couple of quote-unquote failed pilots or pilots that did not measure up as we expected. How can we continue to buy into this culture of innovation and continue to empower people to keep having ideas and keep that mentality of let's just try it out? No matter the outcome, let's keep trying it out. How can we keep that momentum going? Yeah. Uh, in some cases, easier said than done. I think one of the most important things we can do is to set up some things that minimize our organizational risk. Um, like I mentioned before, an innovation fund is a really great tactic and tool to do that with. I look at it as the most effective, innovative employee you will ever have. So part of it's about disaggregating individual risk and starting to reshape how risk looks. So one thing is we need to pilot fast and pilot often. So we don't just do one pilot. We start 10 pilots because I don't know if anybody's noticed, government can be slow at times. And so we may need to start 10 pilots knowing that one will come to fruition three years from now, because it may take us that long to move the pieces. One might come to fruition three months from now. But if we start today, we create a pipeline of innovation. 
which means that even if one fails, the one right around the corner may be a success. And then we celebrate those successes. And that's incredibly important that as an organization, when we have those wins, we talk about them and we celebrate them and make sure that employees who engage in those behaviors are rewarded. And then in terms of disaggregating that risk, like let's face it, there's risk to this and there's public risk to this. So part of it is that if we have things like an innovation fund and we set that up properly, the statement we can make to our community is we believe in innovation and we're going to try things to make this the best community it can possibly be. We're not always going to win, but we are going to try. So for example, in Adams County, we had 26 programs submitted over the course of three years from employees. We used an innovation fund to fund those. So the innovation fund itself would only fund pilot projects. 22 of those 26 were what I would call successful. The other four weren't on the scale that we had hoped for. But those four projects, you could not have met prouder project owners than those four people. And they were happy to talk about their failure. And so it was just the language of innovation. And that's how we talk. So what was great is people were proud when they succeeded, but they were just as proud when they failed because they knew that it was not going to be something where their job was in jeopardy for doing it. And what a cool way just to cast a vision to your constituents as well. It's not, okay, we're just trying this project out just because we're casting a vision for a better Denver, a better Den, wherever you live, and being able to cast that vision to the constituents from the start, have them understand, hey, some are going to work out good, some maybe not so much, but having everyone understand that we're pursuing these pilot programs for the betterment of our neighborhood or of our city just seems like such a beautiful way to have people buy in and support it. And what was great about that too, Jacob, was we had 22 stories that we could tell at any given time, right? That we can go to the media with and and have these conversations and they can understand the impact. One of my favorite that came out of it was something called the cash closet, um, where what we did was, was, it was, it was an acronym standing for clothing, accessories, shoes, and hygiene. And one of the biggest impediments that people have when they're in a low income situation or borderline homeless in terms of getting employed is that they don't have access to the things that allow them to be professional in a job interview. And so we had a group that decided they wanted to create a closet where people who had uh, verifiable job opportunities, job interviews were able to come and shop in this closet, get basic hygiene items like a toothbrush and uh, razors and shaving cream and those kinds of things, as well as, um, you know, pantsuits and, and donated clothing, those kinds of things. So that when they went in, they were able to be successful. That pilot itself was so successful that we were able to scale it up. It was fully funded and it was even being looked at for statewide adoption. So, you know, just a great opportunity to say how one small pilot might influence how the entire state of Colorado ends up operating. So cool. So Nick, I'm a council person. I'm a mayor. I'm a city manager listening to this podcast. Nick, what's the most important thing that I can do tomorrow? to start fostering innovation within my local government? Yeah, I think number one on the list is we've got to recognize that employees aren't trained for this. You know, like it's not a training that people have received. So we can talk about it, but it's people don't know what they don't know. If they've never been taught creativity techniques, then how do we how can we expect them to be creative and think outside the box when they don't even know that they're thinking inside of it to begin with? So for me, it's really about how we educate our employees and how we encourage our employees to educate each other. I'm a big fan of employee-led education efforts. So for me, it doesn't belong to HR, as an example. It's the responsibility of all of our employees to educate each other 
but also we need to introduce these techniques about creativity and these techniques about how to get it done, the implementation side, and we need to keep it real. Scrubbed academic documents may absolutely have value, but that's not how it works in the real world in government. So we need to have some candid conversations about how do we get creative? You know, what does that look like? So I'm a big fan of the education component first. And, and if that's maybe the more difficult piece for your organization is introducing creativity techniques or, or those sorts of things, I think the, the follow-up to that would be establishing an innovation fund and having some conversations about how we value innovation, what is it we're looking to engage in, and how do we successful with that? And I think if we start talking about what does success look like and what does it not look like, then, then we're really starting to engage in some meaningful discussion that makes innovation real. Nick, are there any resources for educating employees that come to mind if someone's listening to this podcast and wants to start tomorrow fostering this um, employee engagement and education? Do any resources come to mind that they can check out? Sure. Sustainovation just got released this month. It's a great Truly, that was part of what I was attempting to do with that, though, is to really encapsulate some of those key creativity concepts. I, I think that there's a couple of different ones out there. Some other great books that I love. Austin Kleon's Steal Like an Artist is a really great book. Um, so I really enjoy that one. Sticky Wisdom by the What If Foundation is another really great book. And for those looking for sort of the quick deck, I think that uh, Roger Van Oak's Creative Whack Pack are all some really great sort of tools to kind of get a group kicked off if it's not sustainability. So I think it's more the intentional conversation about what it is we're, we're, we're looking for that really gets the conversation kicked off on the right note. Well, Nick, to wrap up, and this is the question that we end every podcast episode with, how does this action, innovating in local government, make our town stronger? Well, when it comes to communities, Jacob, honestly, and I think we all know this, right? We're going to have winners and losers in, in the game of communities, and, and that trend is going to continue. Innovation and clarity are two of the most important things we can do to change the perception of people we serve and stop them from being so afraid of government. That's a powerful mandate. That is something that speaks to my very core. And if you believe like I believe, that is what we're here to do. So it is about changing the way that our communities look so they can interact with us. And that's a critical part of the fabric of our democracy. So to my mind, we're dealing with a with something that's core to the value of our democracy. And that's why innovation is so absolutely critical. Um, it's the largest employer. Government's the largest employer in the U.S. and has no R&D department. And that's crazy. You, know, you, you wouldn't invest in a Fortune 100 company that didn't have an eye on the future. And we must understand and accept that there is a penalty for doing nothing. Uh, you know, I was reading an article recently about a, uh, a town in Iowa that had seven times more parking spaces than people and had a $7 billion investment in its parking infrastructure, at, at the same time facing a, a several hundred million dollar deficit, could thinking differently have prevented them from getting into that situation and where it is? Because now they have a penalty for doing business the way they've always done it. And all of our communities are facing that level of crisis. Most people are frightened of change. I'm petrified of what happens when we do nothing. That's truly scary. And those communities that have not invested in innovation, not invested in themselves in the right way, will spend those dollars in wasteful ways while missing the opportunities to lead. And that tears at the fabric of what is, you know, the greatest country in the world. So to, to my mind, it is a mandate for us to innovate in local government. And I'm proud to be part of the movement of people all across the country that are helping to make that happen. 
Well, man, I just appreciate you so much taking the time to share your wisdom with us, empower us, whether we're the public or elected officials, to really rethink how we can bake innovation into how we live and work. Nick, if people want to reach out to you, learn more about you and the work you're doing, where can people find you online? So I have my own website, sustainovation.us. Um, it's sustainovation.us, actually, so you can connect with me there. I do work with Cartograph as their government performance and innovation coach. So for some of your listeners, they may be Cartograph customers, and I do work with their customers to help them understand the principles of high-performance government and how we do it. So if you're a Cartograph customer, you've got access that way. Um, but you know, you can visit me on my website, check me out on Twitter at, at KittleNT, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm out and about there, Jacob. So uh, welcome any interactions I can have with anybody out there and happy to help. Well, Nick, thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Hey, thanks, Jacob. Thanks for the time today. Bye, Nick. All right, bye. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you're enjoying the content, please subscribe to It's the Little Things on iTunes, and we will chat next week. See ya. See ya.